This morning we're going to be reading from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The first account I I composed, Theopolis, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Father, we ask you for the prayer that you have in your heart now for us to say as we are here together. We just thank you so much that after Jesus uh, accomplished the most difficult of any mission ever assigned to any human being, he was taken back up into heaven. And we heard this morning about the angels worshiping him and the clouds and how proud the Father was to welcome him back after fully having accomplished uh, what he was sent to do. We don't have enough words or enough years and days in our life to thank you for all you have done. We ask that you would be glorified and lifted up and honored now in this place and throughout the earth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kathy. I do trust you've turned to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We will be looking at multiple passages this morning in the book of Acts itself. But we are considering the storyline of the Bible. The Bible has a primary storyline. It is about the person and purpose of God. It celebrates who he is and what he has done. And now who we as his people are in him. From the very beginning of the story, we see that a villain was introduced in chapters 1 and 2, and then in chapter 3 with the fall itself. From the very, very beginning of the story, even with the introduction of the villain, we have a hero foretold, both as a deliverer and one who brings deliverance. We have seen that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and in verse 21. Then we see the hero's arrival in the Gospels. God, what he has promised, performs. And the hero appears on the stage of life. We see the hero's work. 
He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He redeems us from the shame, the fear, and the guilt. He redeems us from our self-effort of this human autonomy. And he delivers us so that we are now his people. And now we are looking at the hero's legacy. In his absence, his concrete, tangible, physical absence, what do we do? We began looking at this idea in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, we are left with this idea. Wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes upon you, and you will be clothed with power. And then beginning in Jerusalem, go to all the nations and retell the story. Retell the story, the storyline of God, the person and purpose of God. We're picking up that story from Luke 24 in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. There is a sense in which Acts is the rest of the story. But the story teaches us that God is winning. God is winning. What the hero has entrusted to us, he is performing through us. He has given us a task to do. Acts tells us that what he has promised, he is performing. What he has entrusted to us, he is performing through us. And we are a part of that one story of God. And that's what we will consider this morning as we look at the book of Acts. Because it gives us the rest of the story that we saw initially in Luke 24, verses 39 through 49. The power they were told to wait for in Luke 24 is now present in Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts gives us the narrative of how the story of God was proclaimed to all the nations beginning, however, in Jerusalem. There is a distinct plan in the legacy our Lord and hero left to us, to those who love him and who are privileged to carry out his mission in his physical absence. And that's what we are considering this morning. We go to all the nations. We go to all the nations, but we begin in Jerusalem. I often hear of imbalance, where the focus is only on missions as it exists on foreign soil. Or we see it in the other way where there's an unhealthy emphasis on reaching our immediate context without any real concern for the world at large. And I believe it is a both-and proposition. I don't believe it is one or the other. I don't believe, beginning in Jerusalem, we neglect Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And thus, I think we have to strike this balance between the Jerusalem, the Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost or remotest regions of the world. Our responsibility to the world as we go forward is not met by throwing a few dollars and offering up token interest. We have to be invested both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest regions of the world. Such a response of throwing a few dollars and offering up a token interest cannot silence our obligation to our immediate community either. We must become relational with our community and with our world through individual involvement and through corporate strength. And we'll be noting that in the service itself. But we must be relational as a fellowship, as a community of faith in our immediate community, in our nation, and in our world. We're going to focus primarily on the book of Acts to see how the hero's legacy, how his work is going forth. And inside the book of Acts, there are three salient features. The first is what were they to do as they were going forth? What were they to do? What were they to say? 
Secondly, how would they do it? How would they continue to retell the story? And then finally, where were they to go? But let's begin by initially noting the message. We'll look at the message, then the means. We'll consider then the method, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the remotest regions of the world. But what was the message that the early church preached? What was the message that they kept retelling? I have but one word to capture the message of the New Testament church, and it is the word Christ. I am not going to consider the words word or gospel as it is found in the book of Acts, but I would like us to look in our Bibles at the various passages that emphasize this idea of Christ crucified, of Christ being the message that they were left with to be retelling. So let us all turn to Acts chapter 3, verse 18. Acts chapter 3, verse 18. Notice what it says, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, and if you've been with us for any period of time over the length of the storyline, you've realized that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what was foretold and figured. And so in this statement, we read that same idea. Beforehand, by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ, his anointed, the hero, would suffer. He has thus fulfilled. Now turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Again, notice the text. And here's what I want us to feel this morning. As we look at these various passages... And there are numerous passages. But as we look at the various passages, as you hear them read, as you read them for yourself, I want us to feel the weight of what we are reading. When we say that the early church preached Christ crucified, we ought to say it with conviction. The early church preached Christ crucified. They preached Christ And I believe that the body of evidence we have in the book of Acts, even in the letters of Paul, Assure us of this truth, of this conclusion. The message they preached was Christ. Acts chapter 5, verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching what? Jesus as the Christ. They kept at it. They did not relent. Everything they preached was from him, through him, and for him. Regardless as to the topic discussed, Christ was the centerpiece. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. I'll read verses 5 and verse 12. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, all of this is tied together. They were being baptized, men and women alike. Acts chapter 9, verse 22. And what is interesting, if we took time to look at the various scenarios in which the various contexts in which these passages are placed, They're always different. There are always different people preaching these things. It wasn't as if it was just the Apostle Paul or just Peter on a particular occasion. 
They were always, everyone, preaching Christ. Acts chapter 9, verse 22, But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. I'm going to have you turn to one last passage. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. And again, if we were to look at the various contexts or circumstances or events in which these verses are found, what we are saying this morning would simply be strengthened. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Now, for the sake of time, I am simply going to read several other passages. But I think you have the idea that we are trying to stress that throughout the book of Acts, inside the early church, what the Spirit does is show us what the early church preached, and they preached Christ. In Acts chapter 15, verse 26, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 17, verse 3, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Acts chapter 18, verse 5, but when Silas and Timothy came together from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Acts chapter 18, verse 28, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Acts 26, verses 21 through 25. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that Christ was to suffer. And that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this to, in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. What was Paul preaching? Christ. He preached the centrality of Christ in all of the scripture. And here is Festus saying, Paul, you are absolutely insane. You are dominated and driven by this one idea. And the idea is Christ. Paul said to Festus, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. Jesus is the Christ. He is the hero of God. He is the one who was prophesied of in Genesis 3.15. He is the one that was figured in Genesis 3.21. And all the prophecies and promises, all the types and shadows, all the figures spoken of prior to him find their conclusion in him. He is the fulfillment of the promise. Acts chapter 28, verse 31. The last text I will read this morning concerning this idea. Acts chapter 28, verse 31. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. That is what we are doing today. We are preaching Christ the early church preached Christ. We 
have nothing to be ashamed of or for which we should apologize. We are a Christ-exalting, word-centered community of faith. And that is what the early church was. All of this is consistent with what the early church taught, preached, and lived. It is always and forever about Jesus Christ. The scripture is full of information. But it is information that leads the reader to Christ. Unfortunately, we read scripture to find how to live, which the scripture is not a book telling us how to live, even though it does give us these things. But its purpose is to show us what he is like. The storyline of the Bible is about the person and purpose of God. Do you know God? The scripture is all about Jesus. I believe the scripture teaches on many things. But all these things lead us to this one thing. And this one thing is Jesus. So we see the message inside the early church. The legacy left to us is to keep retelling the story. And the story is from him, through him, and for him. It is all about God. Now notice the means. And here's where we come back to the text in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, primarily... Verses 4 through 8. But I'm going to read for you. You need not turn there, but I'm going to read for you Luke 24, verse 49. And I want us to see the connectedness between Luke 24, 49 and Acts chapter 1, 4 through 8. In Luke 24, 49, it says, And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. The promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He ends with that idea in Luke 24. He picks it up in Acts 1. And Luke wrote both of the two books. But now let's pick up that same idea in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and following. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Remember, that's what we just read. But to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is a part of the promise. This baptism with the Holy Spirit. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, and I love, I love what's happening here. They're wanting to know all about eschatology and what does Jesus do? He says, calm down. Whatever eschatology is about to happen, whatever end time truth is about to unfold, it's always going to be about me. And when that does happen, it will happen because it happened according to the fixed time set by God. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now notice this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, when you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is the promise. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. This is the message that we are to be retelling to everyone everywhere at all times that Jesus Christ lives. How are we to do that? The means which the Father has given to us to accomplish what he has asked 
is that he has given to us the promise. You and I, as his people, have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in that baptism, we have been clothed with power. There is a legitimate progression, and this is what I would like us to note this morning, from God the Father to his Son, through the Holy Spirit to his people. There is a legitimate progression from God the Father to God the Son to the Holy Spirit to his people. God the Father has given to his Son the authority to carry out the mission. The Son has transferred this authority to his disciples. God the Father has commissioned his Son. His Son has now commissioned us. In the Holy Spirit, his disciples have a resident power to carry out the hero's legacy. Notice how this breaks down. The Father gives to his Son the authority to carry out the mission. Notice two verses. John 20, verses 21 and 22, and Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19. I'll cite these two verses now, and they support the two ideas that we will speak about right now. In John 20, it says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father hath sent me. I also send you, just as so also. The Father has given to me, the Son, authority, a commissioning that I have carried out, and I have done it in his power. Now I am doing the same for you. You are going to receive that power and that commissioning and that authority. Now you are to go forth and carry out the Father's work. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is all tying in together with Acts 1, the promise of the Father, the power of the Father, baptism with the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 18 and 19, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I have all the authority. I have all the power. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations as you are going. See for yourself that you are part of the one story of God. And as you are in that context, in that subplot, make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The New Testament record clearly shows how Jesus Christ came from and worked by means of the Father. He was sent or commissioned with a work to do. He worked because the Father worked through him. He represented the Father's authority. It is the same sending or commissioning the Son has now given to us. We have that same sending. We have that same commissioning. We have the same authority. We do not have to wait and see as if we do not know what we are to be doing. We know what we are to be doing. We are to be retelling the story to everyone, everywhere, at all times. But the Father has given to His Son authority, and this authority that has been given to the Father the Son has now transferred to his disciples. We see that both in John 20, the passage we just read, and Matthew 28. I like this statement by A.T. Robertson. He is referencing Matthew 28, 18 and 19, but listen to what he says here. Jesus came close to them and made this astounding claim. He is speaking to his disciples, Matthew 28. He spoke as one already in heaven with a worldwide outlook and with the resources of heaven at his command. All authority has been given to me. Now I am sending you forth with all of this authority. His authority or power in his earthly life has been great. And we have seen that throughout the study of Mark. Now it is boundless. 
and includes earth and heaven. It is the sublimes of all spectacles to see the risen Christ without money or army or state charging this band of 500 men and women with world conquest and bringing them to believe it possible and to undertake it with serious passion and power. Pentecost is still to come, but dynamic faith rules on this mountain in Galilee. God has commissioned us and he has given us everything we need to keep retelling the story. It is unfortunate and foolish for us not to be about our father's business. He wants us to see ourselves as a part of the one story and to keep retelling the story to everyone everywhere at all times. For us not to know what we are to be doing. What should I be doing? We are to be fundamentally retelling the story. The business of retelling the story in whatever context we find ourselves is the mission of God. And it is the mission of his church to keep retelling the story, to keep preaching Christ to everyone, everywhere, at all times. So the father has given to his son authority. The son has transferred that authority to us. In the Holy Spirit, his disciples have a resident power to carry out the hero's legacy, his mission. We've already cited Luke 24, 49. We have already considered Acts 1, verse 8. We know in Acts 2, you have the day of Pentecost, verses 1 through 4. It describes this baptism that is taking place. But the question that we might ask ourselves is, what is this power? And I'm going to condense this just a little bit. I would encourage you to pick up the manuscript in the foyer to look at it for yourself if perhaps you're doubting as to whether or not you have this power. But let me assure you, from Acts 1 and inside the narrative of the book of Acts, you and I have the power. We have the power of God. What is this power? Acts 1 says it is the baptism that happens by or with the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, verses 10 through 12, the Bible reads as follows, as Jesus speaks to his disciples in the upper room. He says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. I find that so fascinating, the dynamic of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. I think that's what we're seeing in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And greater works than these he will do. Greater than Jesus? I do not believe it is a qualitative greatness. I think it is a quantitative greatness. And notice what it says, in greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. And when I go to the Father, I will give you the Holy Spirit. And John 14, 13 through 17 says that the Holy Spirit abides with you and will be in you. This is the power that you and I enjoy. The baptism of the Spirit. We are clothed with power. Power to do what? Be his witnesses. That's what we are, to keep retelling the story. You and I have the power. I find that somewhat interesting because this is what the power looks like. This is what the power looks like. If you are a believer and you're listening today and you are asking yourself what you must do to get the power, 
I will tell you based on the authority of God's word that you already have it. You already have the power. You and I are living in that power. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. It is this Christ life, this God life that we are living. And you might say to yourself, it sure doesn't feel like it. I am telling you based on the authority of God's word that you are clothed with power. And we as a community of faith are to be retelling the story. But why is it we don't feel the power? I believe we have denied the power by believing that what they had with Jesus or in the book of Acts is different than what we have. We've, we've faced this question many times. Is what we are doing now qualitatively different than what they were doing then? Or we often say, wouldn't it have been great to live when Jesus lived, to have seen him, to have touched him, to have looked at his power, to have had this tangible, concrete presence. Surely it must have been better when Jesus was living on the earth. Or surely it must have been better in the early church when we see these open manifestations of power. When we do that, we're denying that what we have is the same as to what they had. But what we have is the same As to what they had. In Luke 24 and Acts 1, when Jesus said to his disciples, stay here until you are clothed with power and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then it happens. We're enjoying that. We are the consequences of that action. You and I have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. We have the gift of the Father, the promise of the Father. We are living in that power. But why is it that we don't feel the power? And I think we deny the reality of the power because of three things. First, we believe our lives are too ordinary. And we do not see how, who we are and what we do as a part of the one story. You know what I do every day? I get up and I go to work. I put in my eight to ten hours. I come home. I eat my meal. I exchange a few words with my wife. I look at my kids. I watch a little TV and I go to bed. And you know what I do on the next day? The same thing. Where's the power? Hold it. Your life as it exists is a part of the one story of God. God doesn't have multiple stories going on. What's happening is that your life is a subplot to the greater plot. And the greater plot is the person and purpose of God. And your life, as mundane and as routine as it might appear to be, as a part of the one story. You think, oh, wouldn't it be great to be a pastor of a church where you see all these wonderful things going on? Wouldn't it be great if I were only a missionary? Then my life would be supernatural. Oh, man. We deny the power by not seeing how we are a part of the one story. I I admire, I, I glorify God every time a man or a woman gets up, goes to work, comes home, and stays faithful. I thank God. I thank God for that. That's the power of God manifesting itself in the ordinary, the routine, and the mundane. 
We deny the power when we believe our lives are too ordinary. Every one of our lives are extraordinary because they are all a part of one story of God. And God's person and purpose is being played out. But when we don't see our lives as a part of that one story, we deny the power. A second thing that hinders us from realizing that we have the power is that we do not see ourselves as a part of a local church. We see ourselves as isolated individuals or entities. We're simply out there doing our own thing. But each of us are a part of this one community, a community of faith. Not only is God working in me, but God is working through me to this community of faith. And not only this community of faith, there's a larger global body that God is working in. Do I have all the gifts? No. I might be a hand. You might be a foot. Someone else might be the big toe. Someone else a pinky. Which part is more important? According to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, which part is more important? None of them. Multiple members, one body. Because we don't see ourselves as a part of this community of faith and then a part of the larger global family, we don't think that God is working powerfully. I have said this before. I have a, I have a gifting, and my gifting is perhaps more public than your gifting. But when you exercise your gifting, you are a part of that one story, and the power of God is manifesting itself in that small part, but a part that is absolutely vital to the bigger picture. We have nursery workers, people working right now while you and I are hopefully enjoying and listening to the study of Scripture. Is our role more or less important than their role? Both roles are important. But we deny the power when we don't realize that each of these parts contribute to the whole. So I think there are two reasons as to how or why we deny the power. First, we see our lives as too ordinary. Secondly, we don't see how we are connected to the larger body of Christ. And then thirdly, I think sometimes our view of eschatology greatly affects how we understand this idea. Here's what Acts is trying to tell us. God's winning. And you're winning because you're on God's side. God is winning. And God will bring all of this to a conclusion, his conclusion. But sometimes our view of eschatology greatly affects how we understand this idea. I believe it is wrong for us to deny the one story of God. I believe it is wrong to think everything is worse now than during any other period of time. We could say right now, you know, everybody's like, oh, there's a recession. It could go to a depression. How awful. Sure. Has it ever been worse than it is now? I mean, over the long, I mean, I wouldn't want to live during the bubonic plague days. I wouldn't want to have been hit by a tsunami. I wouldn't want to be in a country where my faith is persecuted and they're cutting off my limbs or I see my family destroyed in front of my eyes. We have a very defeatist view of history. And you and I, of all people, living in a country where we have much comfort and much convenience should not have a defeatist attitude. But I believe we have a defeatist view of history. I believe wickedness will exist until Jesus comes. 
And why will it exist until Jesus comes? Because it is a part of God's one story. But his coming is not based on our commitment or corruption, but on his calendar. Acts 1.7 says that the father has set a time for the son to come. This time has been fixed by his own authority. You and I are living in a kingdom reality, a kingdom reality. But somehow we don't see how we are connected in all of this. It is different than what it will be, but it is no less real. When we see ourselves as a part of this one story, then we will see that God is working and his purpose is unfolding according to his timing. We are a part of this divine lineage and legacy. You and I, it is ours to possess and to proclaim. We talk about the message of the early church. They preached Christ crucified. The means in which that message went forth was by a power of the Holy Spirit. And that power you and I are enjoying right now. If you are not enjoying it, then see yourself as a part of the one story. See yourself as a part of the larger picture and believe that God is winning. But then notice the method stated in Acts chapter 1. And we've seen this already and you're already quite familiar with it. You will begin in Jerusalem. And he says, witnessing both both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. The spread of the hero's legacy, his work that he has entrusted to us, has been constant. It has been constant and continues to this day. God is winning. God is carrying out his purpose. Real quickly, look with me at Acts Well, I don't need you to look with me at Acts. You're in Acts. What I need you to do is look at the slides that are on the on the wall. The slides on the wall outline for us the book of Acts. In chapters 1 through 12, you have the ministry of Peter. In chapters 13 through 28, you have that of the Apostle Paul. But in the ministry of Peter, when you break down the first 12 chapters, it speaks of Peter going to Jerusalem, then Judea, Galilee, Samaria, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. When you talk about the ministry of Paul, he's in Phrygia and Galatia, Macedonia, Caesarea, and Rome. In fact, look at the next slide. Over here is Jerusalem. This is Rome. Between Jerusalem and Rome is 1,434 miles. 1,434 miles. When Paul got saved, you're talking about A.D. 30, A.D. 34, give or take a handful of years. He is dead in A.D. 64 in Rome. In 30 years, the gospel, the story was retold over a distance of 1,434 miles. 30 years. The gospel's spreading. Are you with me so far? Okay, if we translate that into our context, into our context, next map, please. Here's the United States of America. You've got New York, Albany, New York right here. You've got Atlanta, Georgia. You've got El Paso, Texas. You've got Colorado over here somewhere (laughs) right here. Okay, California, California is twice the distance. But when you start thinking about distances... From Milwaukee, Wisconsin to Albany, New York, you've got 921 miles. 
That's hardly anything compared to 1,434 miles. Atlanta, Georgia, 812 miles. Chicago, Illinois, 92 miles. Detroit, Michigan, 379 miles. El Paso, Texas, 1498. That sounds pretty close. Jacksonville, Florida, 1158. Denver, Colorado, 1050. When I look at that, I think to myself, we as a fellowship should aggressively pray, think, and plan as to how we can spread the retelling of the story so that in 30 years from now, we would say that we've been instrumental in seeing the story retold over the entire continental United States. And is it just the continental United States? No. It's both Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest regions of the world. That's God's method. And you know, if we are aggressive in that idea, every time that process takes place and takes root, it's not long before the remotest region becomes a Jerusalem. And then from that place, the gospel continues to spread out. The book of Acts wants us, 2,000 years later, to be encouraged and empowered to continue what has already begun. God has not stopped. He hasn't hiccuped. What God began in entrusting his initial disciples with a legacy continues to this day. And we are a part of that lineage, that heritage, that legacy. The gospel has been preached globally. And his kingdom has spread globally, but it is not over. It's not over. When is it over? It's over when the author shows up on the stage. Our captain, our king, our hero has never rescinded the order. Go into the entire world and make disciples of all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. It has to begin here. We as his people are not to live in defeat and in any way be discouraged. We must know and believe that God has won the victory and we are carrying out his continued conquest. We are asking you, as elders, we are asking you to pray for us as we seek to understand how we can think, plan, and act more aggressively in the implementing of this great truth. We, as a community of faith, we must not relent. We cannot quit. And we must stay the course no matter how difficult the waters might be or how how great the obstacles appear. God has won and we are winning. What would God have us to do as his people? I think our options are twofold. First, stay faithful to the task before you. Stay faithful to the task before you. Be a part of a community of faith. Join us. Come together. Get behind it. Attach yourself to a community of faith and stay faithful to the task. Be involved. Secondly, you might not be one whom God's hand has come upon to go into the remotest regions. 
But if you aren't one of those who go out there into the remotest parts of the world, stay faithful here. But if God has placed his hand upon you, then be sent by a community of faith for the retelling of the story elsewhere. Stay faithful or go as a community of faith. But let us do this. Because I look at what happened in the book of Acts, and Acts is simply telling us that what God promised, he performed. What he entrusted to them, he is performing through them. And you and I are a part of that lineage. We are a part of that legacy. This is our mission. Let us pray and act intentionally and by design so that 30 years from now, when our children are in our place, they will say, look at what was left me. Look at the lineage and the heritage that I have and that I've been a part of as we see the ever-expanding work of God in and through this community of faith. May God help us to understand these truths. Let us pray. Our Father, I am thankful that the victory has already been secured, that the story, the promise is already going forth. We are a part of it. Oh God, cause us to see how we are a part of it, that our lives are a part of the one story. May we carry forth the legacy. May we carry forth this honorable lineage. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.